So I, uh oh. Sorry about okay. that. Go on. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I have over the last 20 years been working on various products, um, not all of them in the cannabis or hemp space, but um, my background started out with designing process runs in the semiconductor industry. And in, the, in this space, I've helped design facilities for processing cannabis and hemp. And then in recent years, I've been working on um, advanced R&D on membrane technologies that can be utilized in chemical separations, in particularly be utilized in biofuels. So I've been evaluating the potential for hemp as a biofuel. Um, that's not exclusively the work I do right now. I'm doing stuff in pharmaceuticals, uh, beverages, various things. But in general, I'm a chemical process designer. I joined the GHA as an advisory board member because I'm trying to see if I could help facilitate the market adoption of hemp as a biofuel um, by lending my expertise or uh, knowledge. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so I, Ahmed, like I said, if there's any questions that come in or if there's any comments that are, you notice in the chat and I'm frozen, please don't hesitate to jump in. Um, okay. I really appreciate you here. Um, also to everybody else that just logged in, thank you very much for joining. I just noticed Eric made a great point. I noticed that our chat is not open. It usually is. And so it must have been an error in our settings. So I do apologize. If you guys are looking to connect, I encourage you to share your contact information in the chat. Um, so you can reach out or connect with each other. If for some reason you'd like, or if at the end of this, you would like to connect with somebody that is on the call, please feel free to reach out or send me an email and I'm happy to help you connect as well or send over an email intro to, to um, you know, help with the connection as well. So thank you, Eric, for sending that over. I appreciate you being on. Um, Vinny, I'll hand it over to you and then I'm gonna hand it over to Joanne and we'll get this started. Um, we, we are a little bit flexible on time. So if we get a lot of questions and we keep, you know, keep the ball rolling today. No, don't hesitate. Uh, we will, we are happy to stay on a little bit longer um, than just the hour. This is a great group and a lot of great content. Um, and so Vinny, I'd love, yeah, a quick intro from you and then I'll hand it over to Joanne. Yes. Hello. Um, I'm Vincent or as everyone calls me Vinny, that way I know that we actually spoke. Um, <laughs> I'm bilingual and bimodal. I'm also an interpreter for the deaf. I'm I'm the guy you see on TV next to Biden or Gavin Newsom. I'm that guy. Um, but my background um, of having deaf parents um, made me think differently in terms of viewing the world. And um, back in the 80s, I was in graduate school. And I, when I finished that, I went through um, UC Davis, UC Berkeley, um, continued my education. And I studied viticulture enology. And I branched out and went into building microbreweries. And I built over 35 microbreweries in the 80s when the law um, legalized it. And I see a lot of parallels in the hemp industry and the microbrewery industry. Big learning curve and people asking questions and looking at the panel, you, we have a ideal dynamic group that can probably fill all the questions that are needed um, that are being addressed today. Um, looking at the feedstock, I'm, I'm now, I build biorefineries and um, the fuel I'm producing is butanol, uh, which is, um, which is a great, great chemical. And the process I'm using, um, I'm using the ABE um, acetone butanol ethanol process. Each one of those products have um, value to it. Um, I'm also looking at the lignin content of, of hemp and looking at that as a source for um, biofuel in terms of um, boiler fuel for fuel cell technology that I've been looking at. Um, my bioreactor also produces hydrogen, but I'm looking at the hydrogen to go into a mixture for aviation jet fuel um, with my butanol. And I've been doing this for a while. And at UC Davis, the model was you drink the best and burn the rest. So I'm on this panel because I'm in the burning stage right now. And Ahmad, you and I are our neighbors. I live in the Berkeley Hills. That's great news, Vincent. Awesome, awesome. Okay, Joanne, thank you very much. Oh, I wish I could see your guys' screens, but Joanne, it's all you. Thank you, Vinny. Okay, hi. Hi, I'm Joanne Ivancic. I'm Executive Director of Advanced Biofuels USA. It's a nonprofit educational organization, and we promote 
understanding, development, and use of advanced biofuels in the US and around the world. We have an online library of more than 40,000 indexed items, including a section on hemp, and I will put the link to that in the chat box. In February, we, the way we got here was in February, I did a Moving Hemp Forward presentation with Mandy, and we talked about biofuels in general, uh, ways that hemp residues can be turned into biofuels and about some policy issues. And since there was so much interest in getting more specifics about that, I asked this group um, to talk about one uh, enzyme-based process that they're working on. Uh, the, it takes hemp and cannabis residues from the breeding and agronomy program that um, Dr. Jurgen Schwartz will talk about at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. It uses crushing and conversion equipment uh, being developed at the Ohio State University uh, with Dr. Fred Michelin, who will discuss that piece. And then it maximizes the enzymatic conversion technology developed uh, at uh, Hood College in Frederick, Maryland with uh, Atlantic Biomass and Bob Kozak will talk about that piece. So I've asked them all to introduce themselves as part of their presentation and I'll be here to help uh, answer questions and try to follow on, in the chat and, and see if I can help out that way. So um, Bob, why don't you take it from there? You're on mute, Bob. Start all over again. Uh, we're gonna sort of round robin this presentation uh, between Fred, Jurgen, and myself. Uh, Jurgen's gonna start us off and then Fred and I will be jumping um, between us on different topics. So Jurgen, take it away. Um, good afternoon. My name is Jurgen Schwartz. I'm from the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Um, we are the 1890 Land Grant University uh, in Maryland, and uh, that's a historically black college and university. And if you don't know much about the history of the 1890s and 1862s, uh, maybe that's another session to talk about that. Um, anyway, um, we um, um, our focus is uh, to, to help small um, and, and underrepresented farmers in our region here in Maryland. Um, in 2019, uh, the uh, uh, Maryland uh, published a pilot program for hemp, which uh, um, allowed hemp to be grown for research purposes, um, and the requirement was to work together with uh, institution of higher education. Um, that uh, kind of uh, brought us into the mix. Um, after an initial hesitation, we quickly realized uh, that this um, is a crop where uh, a lot of farmers, also minority farmers, were interested uh, in, um, and that there's very little scientific information available. And so our plant breeder, our plant pathologist, mm -hmm. our plant physiologist, and uh, entomologists, they were eager to take their respective discipline knowledge and apply it to this new crop where, again, very little information is available. So um, early on, farmers uh, uh, ordered uh, seeds from out of state because everybody was so excited about it. And it turned out that they were full of diseases, viruses, root rocks, uh, root rot, stem rot, and things like that. Um, so uh, we set out to um, uh, you know, uh, help the farmers and, and told farmers we worked with, hey, we are not the extension agent uh, whom you can call up and we know all the answers, uh, but we are willing to work with you and learn together with you. Um, and so one thing we do um, is looking at varieties and, and the diseases and uh, our uh, plant breeder and plant pathologist, uh, they use uh, micropropagation to uh, regenerate clean plant material, um, identifying all the different plants, uh, diseases and, 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 and pests. Um, and so through that work, uh, we had a variety trial last year in Maryland with over 40 varieties. Um, we have a lot of students who are interested in that um, because, uh, you know, hey, work on industrial hemp is pretty sexy. So we had not only our agriculture students, uh, but, but also uh, business majors and computer science majors and so on. And they studied every detail uh, of these different varieties. Um, and uh, uh, 
we've been working with Bob on biofuel of different uh, uh, plants since a while. And we said, hey, Bob, you know, um, here we just take a little bit of the flour and have all the biomass left over, you know, uh, maybe we can uh, uh, see if that works for biofuel. And uh, so that uh, sent us down the road uh, that what we're talking about today. So um, I think that's uh, uh, enough of an introduction. And Bob, I turn it back to you. Okay, thank you. What Jurgen was talking about, and this struck us kind of immediately, was you know if you look at the plant and you realize uh, you know what you, what what the commercial production, the money crop, as it were, is is the buds up here, and we were looking at well what can we do with the rest of it, the leaves, the stalks, and the stems. This has been our focus, um, and we took a look at this and we want. How much of that plant could be used for could be used for biofuel production? And if you see from this chart, this is actually taking apart plants and weighing the individual parts from it. Uh, we came up with an average of nearly 80% of the total biomass of the cannabis or hemp plants that we had there uh, could be used for biofuel production. And if you look at the, uh, you know, the amount of the tonnage that you're getting per acre, this really adds up pretty fast. And so we are getting, um, it, it potentially is a very dense biomass per acre crop uh, that makes a lot of sense to use as a, uh, as a biofuel source. Fred, wherever you are. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, uh, my name is Fred Michelle. I'm in the Department of Food, Ag, and Biological Engineering here at Ohio State University in the College of Food, Ag, and Environmental Sciences. And we're on the Worcester campus, which is really the Ag Experiment Station. And I started doing work back when I did a sabbatical at NREL for a year, looking at pretreatments for different types of feedstocks, cellulosic ethanol feedstocks. Um, and those require some pretty intense uh, chemical transformations before you can actually do the fermentations to produce ethanol. Unlike where we get a lot of our ethanol, which is from corn, uh, where you just basically use enzymes to digest the corn starch, and then do a fermentation to produce ethanol and then separate the ethanol from the other constituents. These types of lignocellulosic feedstocks require a pretreatment, which means a very high temperature, very expensive equipment, special types of Hastelloy steel, which is very expensive to produce. And it contributes really the largest capital investment in these plants, or one of the largest capital investments in the plant. And so we partnered with um, Bob a little bit to look at some other types of feedstocks that are cellulosic, things like sugar beets. Um, and look at how we could maybe use some enzymatic treatments to convert those and minimize or eliminate the pretreatment steps since it's expensive and causes a lot of issues with this whole process. And recently we did some work with a, a local firm called Cedar Valley Farms, which is a hemp producer. And they were looking at this very question at what could we do with these feedstock, uh, this 80% of the plant, which we aren't using. And we looked at two areas, which I have expertise in. One is composting which is really basically turning feedstocks into a, a media that you could use in a potting media as a growing source, as a fertility source. And also in this bioconversion of these types of lignocellulosic feedstocks into ethanol through um, various uh, treatments. So these are some of the products we can make once we get ethanol produced from these feedstocks. And we're trying to convert you may be aware that these, these biomass consist of really three main things. You heard lignin is one of those, cellulose is another, and cellulose is basically like starch with a different type of linkage. So it's basically a big long chain of glucose molecules, which ferment fairly easily. And then also a bunch of five carbon sugars in the hemicellulose fraction. And these materials are different than others in that they have both hemicellulose and cellulose carbohydrates that need to be fermented. But some of these products include ethanol. You may, may or may not be aware that, you know, 10 to 15% of our fuels for cars, the gasoline contains ethanol. And so it's a very, it's a huge industry today and uh, will likely be a larger fraction in the future as we're doing things like with butanol and with um, 
other increases in the amount of this fuel that's allowed in the gas mixtures. There's also potential to produce other products, things like biopolymers. This is an example where they make biopolyethylene. This is something they do in Brazil. But that's another potential use of this ethanol product. And then upgrading it to uh, the use in a jet fuel as well. So I think the next slide, we can go into the next slide. Here we go. Um, so we we as part of this work that we did last year, and this was done on a state of Maryland grant that they actually asked us, could we do something with uh, the residual biomass in, to make biofuels out of it? And this is where the a lot of where this research came from. Uh, and we wanted to take a look at basically one thing is how many gallons per acre could we get from the from the residue? And we used uh, looked at this. Uh, we looked at low end hemp production, high end hemp production that we were seeing uh, from the test crops in Maryland. And the tons of residual biomass per acre ranged from roughly five tons to seven tons per acre. And the gallons of ethanol that could be produced out of that from a little over 400 to around 540. Uh, the wholesale ethanol income at 220 a gallon, uh, nearly 900 to over $1,100. And then also in the last column, we have income for the hemp biomass. Uh, and this would be if we set up an ethanol production facility, uh, the, the, the hemp biomass, the residual biomass, we're looking at a uh, buying price from the growers of $40 per ton. So income per ton of this would range from about 200 to 280. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the important way to look at this is that this is some additional income or a fallback income if you have trouble with you can look at it as like, well, if things go wrong, at least we can monetize the biomass and keep ourselves going. Uh, down on the final uh, row down there, just to update, what does cornstarch produce for uh, per acre? Uh, this is, these are USDA numbers, is 462 gallons per acre at the same price of a thousand. So the interesting thing that we saw is that there is a potential to produce about the same amount of ethanol per acre from the residual biomass as cornstarch ethanol is currently producing. So when you're looking at it from a commercial standpoint, that starts saying that this could make sense. Fred? Yeah, okay. So we started, uh, we're also doing some work on a novel crop called TKS, which is a root crop which produces rubber in the roots. And we've been developing, it, it's a similar kind of situation where you have 10% of the root is rubber, which can be substituted for heavier rubber, which is coming from Southeast Asia. You may not be aware that most of our rubber comes from overseas and we're trying to develop a domestic source. But, so we had the same issue with that crop is 10% of it is our product, 90% of it is needs to be developed for other uses. And so we looked at the conversion of that crop, that root into ethanol. And we used, developed a process where we're using this type of pebble milling. And in the case of the root, it is, allows us to separate into three fractions. One is the rubber fraction, which agglomerates. The second is a liquid fraction, which contains most of the dissolved carbohydrates. And the third is a bagasse fraction, we call it, which is most of the lignin and, and non-carbohydrate fractions of the organic matter left from the root. And so we decided to apply that same method we developed to this, the hemp uh, problem. Uh, and the interesting thing that we discovered is that we could do this process and without pretreatment, we were able to get very high yields. So convert a large fraction of the biomass to fermentable sugars. And we're talking about 80, 80 to 90% of those, which is unusual. Usually that requires a pretreatment to get to those types of conversions. So the process starts with just the stalks, leaves and other materials. And we've done different fractions of this in our experiments um, here. And then we just 
rotate this contactor with that material. And those balls you see in there are just like you might have used when you were a kid to, sh to make rocks smooth and that kind of thing. But it actually just beats the material to a pulp and creates a slurry, a dark brown slurry of materials. We also introduce into this process enzymes. So cellulases, uh, hemicellulases, and pectinase enzymes, which help to break down the material and dissolve it into soluble material. So it starts out as a solid, as you see on the left. And once, once it's been processed for just a few hours, it turns into a liquid fraction. There's still some fibrous material left, as you can see in that one. So next, next slide. But what we end up with is a slurry like this, a liquid slurry, which contains both um, polymers of glucose and also just glucose itself, and also this hemicellulose fraction, which has been hydrolyzed to sugar, uh, simple sugars. And we use a, a bacterial strain, which we've gotten from USDA, which can ferment both of these simultaneously to ethanol. So we're able to use both of the carbohydrate fractions and, and ferment those. And this just shows some of these fermentation experiments which we've conducted. So what this is showing is the, um, the sugars that we've got after our process, our initial process of just creating this slurry. And then the different sugars that are released, glucose, galactic acid, xylose, and arabinose, those are from the hemicellulose fraction, and the ethanol yield that we obtained from those. And you can see that all three of those are converted. Um, there's not, no residuals of those hemis, of the hemicellulose fractions. So we're able to get a very high conversion uh, from this process. Oh, geez. Okay, I'll, I'll t move on to uh, Bob. Okay. Okay. Um, I just wanted to talk, go back a second there. Um, it was very interesting. Uh, if you notice, if you notice the slurries, uh, we did not filter those prior to fermentation. Those were just right out of uh, those containers as you saw them. So you see all the way that we've been going through this process, we've been trying to reduce cost. As Fred said, we don't have to have pretreatment, which is a tremendous cost savings. And if we can get rid of any, any filtering at any point, we're going to save even more money on that. So we've, by doing that, uh, it, it's coming to be a very low cost process. So I'd like to go back to what this means, uh, what, what's the economic equity income from this? How would it help out? Well, we said um, with this, growers would receive up to $280 an acre, pointing out that no matter what happens with the rest of your crop, this is money. And we, we were looking at the, what this means. I think an important way to look at this, and this is if you're trying to grow your crop, trying to grow the size of your farm, that that could cover seed and nutrient costs. And for the agricultural credit industry, this would, as they say, provide sufficient, sufficient de-risking income that directly correlates to showing cash, cash flow to repay the loan. So that we see this as very helpful for small growers, new growers, other people that are wanting to increase their acreage, that this income would, would help to get you there. It de-risks getting into that. You don't have to focus on your CBD costs coming out. So we see this for the growers as a de-risking cost. The other thing at the notice at the bottom, with the way THC regs are in many states, if you go over that sacred number, according to you know, the federal regs are you have to destroy your crop or the crop cannot be taken off your farm. With this process, which we are looking at being portable, we could come on farms, convert the biomass into this, the sugar slurry, which meets the definition of not looking like the original plant. That could be taken off. And even if you had a hot crop or if you had some hot acreage that year, things would not be a complete loss. We could still help you out with some income. So that's what we see. From, you know, from the economic standpoint of it, this has a real benefit, and we think that will, we think that.
you know, besides getting in. Bob, you froze there for a minute. We missed that one part. This We're not hearing this it all, Bob. This would help. Bob, you keep cutting out really bad. Um, Do you hear me? Do you hear me now? Is that better? We hear you now. Okay, I got rid of the video. What we were trying to say was that, you know, we can come in, if you have a hot THC crop, we can come on farms, process it there, and you're still getting income for it. So we see that, that getting into biofuels at a very basic level could help growers get through the bad years, get through bad problems, and give you a little extra income to get through, and then give you options if you want to be come involved in the stream. Could you also help the yeah. uh, police out with uh, destroying seized uh, THC? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, good point, very good point. Um, the other thing that this has the effect on biomass production, that it's a lower feedstock cost than what we're seeing right now. If you look on the, the pie chart on the left-hand side, um, biomass costs for dedicated biofuel crops tend to be about 45% of your biofuel revenue. Uh, with the hemp residual biomass, biomass costs could be driven down to 24% of your total revenue. Uh, this starts making the other things look better. And from a pure biofuel production standpoint, I think this could put hemp ethanol in a competitive position against oil as well as other crops. And this is something that uh, I know you go to a lot of biofuel seminars, everybody's talking about the subsidies, the renewable fuel standard, et cetera, et cetera. I still look at it that we have to compete on price. And if we can compete on price without subsidies, that's the way to start. I agree. And, and um, going into, this is, uh, this is just a schematic right now. It's our next step that we wanna get to is to develop the prototypes for this. But the way, way we see the system, it could work, is that we would have the, what we call the, the farm portable hydrolysis units that would go from farm to farm and do that first step with the uh, roller milling and the enzymes turning it into the slurry. And then that slurry would be transported, what we call the ad needed slurry transports, would bring that back to a hub where we would have the fermentation, distillation, and distribution. Either it could go into blended transport fuels or could go into bio jet fuel or biopod, centralized hybrid. And we think versions of this could really help in some ways have to work in this industry because Fred and I were talking about this the other day. It's not going to be corn where you have, you can go to Iowa or Ohio or Illinois and have 20, 30,000 acres, contiguous acres of corn that can all feed into one centralized facility. Uh, I'd say at least for the next decade, a lot of hemp production is not going to be contiguous. It's going to be distributed throughout states. And we have to be able to do that in an economic manner. Uh, we have to control transportation costs. And I think by separating the hydrolysis unit from the, uh, from the fermentation unit, we can do that. The other thing that a system like this would be good uh, we discovered and we tested it. It didn't matter if the hemp biomass that was put in the system came straight from harvest or if it had been stored for several months. So we don't have to do this as a you know day of harvest system. Uh, you know, so you don't need as many, you don't need that much, you don't need as much capacity for the portable hydrolysis units. Uh, you know, we have more than a week or two to do this. You know, we can spread out the conversion over months. And by so doing, we drive down the production costs. 
And I know you're gonna have questions about this. We can get to those later. And I think we're getting toward the end here. And Fred, if you could uh, summarize all this for us, it'd be great. Yeah, so some of the benefits that we see that make this maybe competitive with, with corn ethanol are that we have very low biomass feedstock costs relative to growing corn. Um, so our, our feedstock is essentially a byproduct of your hemp production already. Um, we also have very good conversion of the cellulosic feedstock to sugars without the use of pretreatment or hydrolysis, which simplifies the process greatly and also the capital costs for trying to do this type of thing. Um, we, there was some previous work done on hemp conversion at UMES, which was able to use pretreatment and get about a 70% conversion. And our, with this new process, we've been able to get conversions of greater than 80% without pretreatment, which is, is pretty significant. And the other thing is that by the use of this bacteria, which can convert both glucose and five carbon sugars to ethanol, we can take advantage of all of the potential carbohydrates that are present in the material. Um, so the benefits basically are this initial chemical and treatment costs are much lower than you would have for other cellulosic feedstocks. For example, if you're looking at corn stalks or straw or other types of cellulosic feedstocks. And it, it eliminates these, the removal costs. When you do this sort of pretreatment, you also have secondary processes you need to do to neutralize the material that's obtained after pretreatment, whether it's neutralizing acids or base amendments. And so it, it simplifies, simplifies the process and makes it a path towards commercialization a little bit simpler than the typical cellulosic ethanol processes. Um, so I think we're, we, that's all we have. I think we're ready for questions. Yeah. Who's ever running the, the question yeah. machine? Here, I'll, I'll, I'll um, get one question. I, I'm, I'm, I don't have my video on because um, I was, we were getting uh, too much, <laughs> too, too much, too much uh, stress on, on uh, the, the program here. Um, but I think that one thing to, you might want to talk about a little bit is what's the difference between um, uh, different kinds of things that you can use to make uh, uh, renewable fuels, like the different kinds of, uh, of alcohols, ethanol, butanol, um, and what's the difference? We've had some questions about uh, diesel and uh, biodiesel. So how are these, how, um, you know, I would say you could use the seeds most likely to make uh, biodiesel, but that biodiesel and, and ethanol fuels and gasoline are very, very different. And so uh, if one of you could take that one on. Sure. Um, this, is an, this is an ethanol, this is an ethanol production system. Um, which as Joanne just said, it's not, it's not oil-based and it doesn't go through that oil-based pathway into, into the diesel fuels. Uh, you know, it's, it's based on using the lowest cost or the lowest value feedstock, whereas seeds have value. This doesn't have value. And the thing that we liked about the hemp or just the ethanol, uh, the ethanol pathways uh, all the different things you can do with ethanol. It, it, makes, a, it makes a good feedstock for, for the uh, sustainable aviation fuels, as they call it. It's, it's a good polymer feedstock, and of course, it's a motor fuel feedstock. And I'm not denigrating anything about diesel or anything. It's just, it's a different pathway. And right now, if you look at the market for ethanol as a renewable fuel, it is the biggest market in this country. And if you look at Brazil's market and with the building, uh, the building market in Europe, it, it's a big market. For instance, um, DOE points out that there's roughly a million barrels a day of ethanol used in the United States. So this is a big industry. Um, and those numbers have been that way since about 2008. So it's a stable, big industry. Uh, that's a good thing to feed into. There's, you know, there's, there, you know, it's, it's a, it's a market. It runs well. Uh, it, it's something 
that it's not experimental. And I think that's the other thing that we wanted to point out by doing this was we wanted to feed into a non-experimental biofuel and bioproduct industry. And we think ethanol as a source is probably you know, one of the best for that. Um, there was also a question about the two hundred and eighty dollars uh, uh, that you have there for the, the what you would pay for feedstock. If you could talk a little bit more about that. Okay, what that was based on was, and it it looks like we just pulled it out of the air that uh, we that this is just a number that we're working with the forty dollars feedstock. Uh, where that came from is if you look at the switchgrass market, uh, it's about in the same range as that. And again, uh, you know, this isn't the thing to remember that you weren't growing this for the residual biomass. You're growing this for the CBD, the THC that's coming off the top. This is something that, you know, we can help on the bottom. Uh, you know, I'm sure that we're going to, there's, there's going to be discussions about that price. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, it'll be worked out different ways. If you're in a co-op, uh, you know, if the co-op is running the ethanol plant, that isn't really an issue. It's you're putting your residual biomass into ethanol production and your income comes from selling ethanol. So, um, what about what about if your acreage is, is it a per ton price or is it just whatever you get off of that? Acre. No, I said it's per ton. It's forty dollars per ton dry biomass. Um, hey, this is Ahmed here. I had a couple comments about your presentation. I wanted to thank you for putting all this together. This is some excellent work. Um, I had a couple things. One is um, there's uh, whenever you do these type of studies. It's very interesting to do a, a besides the mass balance and energy balance, because when you make a fuel, you put a certain amount of energy in to run your chemical process. And then that fuel makes some energy that you want to burn. And that energy balance is interesting to understand how much, you know, is it a negative amount or a positive amount? Um, could you talk about that for a minute? Fred, could, could, you, could, you, could you attack that? Yeah, I, I guess I would start with, um, you know, corn ethanol is a positive energy generation, you know, relative to gasoline and other fuel sources. The, in this situation, we're not doing a pretreatment step. So we're not using higher, a very high temperature steam to create this sort of pretreatment uh, reaction and pre high pressures. So we have less energy use for that step. We haven't done a life cycle or techno-economic analysis to that extent to look at that energy balance. Um, I think that's something we should do in the future. Um, but, you know, it, it's, I think the, the other energy inputs would be for producing the enzymes that you're using um, for transporting these feedstocks to the central facility. Um, and those aren't gonna be that different than your corn ethanol type of things that you're doing, uh, transporting by truck versus maybe by train and truck for corn. Um, and rail for corn, but um, yeah, so I, I guess we don't know that answer that question at this point, but I, I would say that it's likely going to be a, an energy bone, you're going to get increased amount of energy from this by the energy that you introduce. I don't think it would be very, I mean, you could think of other uses where you could get that energy, you could take the material and just burn it essentially and use the heat energy to do some things with that. Um, you could also do some things like uh, producing compost from it, for example, which might not take much energy, and then you can use that as a fertility source uh, to re recycle that material on site. But um, I think that there has been a lot of work done on on eth corn ethanol, and I know work done by groups in uh, Stanford and Berkeley have questioned some of the some of that stuff, but most of the life cycle assessments that have been done by USDA have shown uh, a positive benefits of corn ethanol. Which so is what Dr. Dan, Dan Kamen at UC Berkeley that was doing the analysis about the energy output and the energy input 
it takes to make a, 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 a gallon of ethanol. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're right on that. That was at UC Berkeley. I, I worked there. Yep. And those, those studies account for everything from the tractors used to harvest the crop to the growing. there, the growing the food fed to the workers, to the produced production of the seed, everything. So, um, sorry. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing we could do in the future on this kind of study. And I think it would be important too for if, when it comes to subsidies and those things, sorts of things that the federal government may offer for cellulosic ethanol, they are very interested in those balances and they likely would not support things that didn't show that kind of a positive. Another thing, uh, Frederick, that I wanted to mention is that the uh, US Congress has been working on a bill uh, for the Sustainable Aviation Fuel Act. And the, the goal in the United States is, I think it's by 2030, they would like to get upwards of 30% of the aviation fuel from renewable resources. And we stand kind of at this point where could uh, we sow a pathway for the hemp plant into a sustainable aviation fuel, but you know, there, first you have to make the hemp into ethanol, and then you have to do ethanol to jet fuel. And uh, I think the research you've done so far is that first step. Is there anything that's been planned to try to show that there's a viable pathway from the ethanol to jet fuel and kind of what the rest of that process would look like? Um, I'll take that one. Joanne, Joanne, can I answer that? Um, We've been working with Veritamass on ethanol to jet fuel using their process. Um, and that's you know, our next step was when we start producing enough of this ethanol, we will be testing it in that process. Uh, you know, we, like I said, we're working with Veritamass on that. Jivo uh, has a process as well, but the one that we're familiar with is the one from Veritamass. And as we go forward, we will be uh, look, looking into that. And Jeep was uh, looking at using the butanol as the surfactant right. for, for yeah. the jet fuel. Mm-hmm. I've talked to the DOD and gone through our process. Um, we're using both the um, the butanol and the hydrogen that we're actually is our, our off gas to formulate to make the the biojet fuel. Um, when I got out of the meeting, they, the amount of volume that this the DOD wanted, I would need to build thirty factories and. Um, it's a it's good possibility the the, the the potential is amazing what you can do and if you look at hemp i mean it's it's an amazing feedstock the cellulose content is 44.5 percent and hemicellulose is 32.78 um if you can get past the the initial cost of breaking down the sugars in which i've in our process are the, the patents that we have is we by step the whole hydrolysis process and I can isolate both the C6, C5 sugars uh, for our fermentation and putting into a bioreactor, I have a bacteria that's doing the ABE, the, um, the Weissman process for converting the, um, the sugars, both sugars into butanol. And um, it's an incredible feedstock for what we're looking at doing. The lignin percentage is 21% lignin and it's that's going to toxify any of the, your broth that you're fermenting. You can't make like people talk about making beer. And, I, and like I said, I made I built 35 microbreweries and to um, if you look at that lignin is like no one wants to touch that, but we can actually separate the lignin into a separate stream in our process, not using any heat, chemicals, pressures. And um, so we've taken out the um, petroleum on the, um, the process that we're doing to make our biofuels and the lignin we can pick up and put through a, a, a boiler fuel as a fuel cell technology, which will actually power our facility, power what we're doing and put the extra power on the grid, making green electricity. Um, so hemp is a, just an ideal feedstock. We're looking at hemp as a, um, a rotation crop and because once you're located in, in a facility, um, you don't want to drag around your equipment to all the different um, hemp farms. But if you have an agreement with your farmers, we have co-ops looking at us right now to where we have a cycle of the hemp that's going to be processed and a cycle of a of a hybrid corn that we're using that was um, developed by the USDA that's hyoleic. 
And that oil, that oil is the good oil in your diet. It has all the branched chain amino acids in the protein. So I can extract the protein as a protein isolate for human consumption. So it's on par with egg whites. And the oil I extract, I don't use any solvents, chemicals, there's those hexane, propane, or butane in my process. I'm using a mechanical process to extract it. It comes out pure, the molecules are intact. So the oils are, are basically very valuable. So you don't wanna mix that into your biodiesel um, formulation. So I'll pick up the oil when we're doing biodiesel using the butanol and another um, inferior oil for a fuel source. So it's, it's um, the demand is huge right now. Joanne? Yeah, one thing is yeah, I, put in, I put in the chat the link on our site to um, alcohol to jet information. So you, you can find out more about alcohol to jet, uh, what's going on with that uh, by following that link. Thank you, Joanne. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention that you guys might want to address or, or talk about is um, recently in 2022, the uh, RPE had put out a broad agency announcement. And one of the topics that they're looking at is the idea of uh, the development of genetically modified enzymes. And it's important to the potential of hemp as a biofuel because, uh, for example, when you, when you ferment um, these sugars to make ethanol, one of the byproducts is CO2. And a lot of what we're trying to do and in, uh, increase sustainability is to remove CO2 from the air. And there is research that's going on where there are custom enzymes that now don't give off the CO2. So that would cut that 50% output of CO2. And that's one of the actively funded RPE projects. Um, there's actually a company down the street for me that's commercializing that uh, in near Oakland, California. They're actually in Hayward, California. And th this te technology combined with you know, the getting rid of the hydrolysis would help with the overall carbon footprint because right now when you make bioethanol, you're spitting out some CO2. Now, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about your thoughts on that type of technology and how it may be applied. Um, yeah, I know. I saw that RPE thing. Um, I'm not sure I believe it. Uh, <laughs> the thing about the CO2 that, that's produced, you know, you can, you can do lots of stuff with it. Uh, you can capture it for production, you can, you know, there's CO2 to methanol processes if you really want to close the circuit. So we're looking at it more of, um, it, it, you know, makes more sense to capture it. And in fact, we're, in fact, I was at the uh, Advanced Biofuel Leadership Conference back in March, and there were two people from USDA who were pushing, they said to get our CO2, you get our greenhouse gas numbers to look better said to have it and bury it. You know, if you want to, you know, if you want to follow that game of reducing your, your CO2 output, there are other ways to do it. Uh, like I said, I personally favor uh, capturing it and using it, you know, for, you know, production of methanol or seeing what else you could do with it. That, that enzyme process that ARPA uh, is proposing, it's, well, I, I'd like to see it work, but I, I sort of wish good luck on that. Another question that was in there was, um, what are the, what are the roadblocks? What what makes get, getting making this happen difficult? Money. Well, I would like to add some ridiculously low THC limits. Yes. And uh, that's that's one of the big things that's run so many people out of the business. So, and by the way, Bob, Bruce, Eric. Good to see some familiar faces here. Bob, I have a question about the leftover residuals at the end of the process. Is there any potential of running that through some form of pyrolysis and then making charcoal out of it? And Ahmed, I saw a video with some of your thoughts on hemp-based charcoal some time ago too. So is there anything left that could be used as fuel at the end of your process? with the yes. residuals once they've been beat to death by those balls. Got it. There is some there. Um, if we go into phase two of this project, that's something that we are going to be looking at. Um, you know, I think 
I forget the numbers. I think it's like a ton per acre or something left over. And, you know, we've looked at different things with that. You know, pyrolysis is one approach. Heck, the other thing is just to burn it and produce electricity to power your, uh, you know, to power, to power our equipment. So there's, you know, there are some things that we are going to look at with that. Very good. Yeah, that's, I think, and whenever it comes to biofuels and hemp, biofuels make very little sense to begin with, as it takes X amount of calories to get X amount less calories in your biofuel. But with hemp, you have a variety of other income streams you can attach to it. And um, I see that as the one thing that will take hemp into the premier biofuel production crop in, in the world. I don't think anything else can beat it, even algae. So just my thoughts. Hello, this is I had one other quick thought and comment that I wanted to make because um, in California, I was doing research on what they're doing with the hemp and cannabis. And a lot of a lot of times what happens is you have these depots in California where are transfer stations for this particular material. And people are paying to get, uh, for example, spent biomass after say CO2 extraction or ethanol extraction, they pay to get it picked up and then it goes to these depots. If you had a portable distributed system, wouldn't it make sense to put this type of units maybe at one of those depots where people have paid to get the material there? Uh, I agree completely. Uh, when we were discussing, you know, when we, where's the diagram? Um, you know, this is just, you know, one place. When we did similar work, uh, when we were laying out a system like this with uh, energy beats, of course, you know, they're already, the, the fact that there already is collection points for the energy beats, you would just build that onto that. And this is something that we saw was depending upon what's going on in each state. So if there is a collection point, it would, it, there'd be no way, it doesn't make sense not to have it there. <laughs> One of the issues that I was facing when I was trying to talk to these uh, depot points, um, they have specific regulations that they have to follow, like chain of custody, when it comes to something with drug content. And a lot of times it, it almost ends up predicates that they have to like incinerate the stuff. And they were starting to research at like Gaica was the company I was talking to in California, G-A-I-C-A. They were looking at trying to make animal bedding and things like this, but I was pushing them like, hey, could we try out biofuels on site where we try to refine this stuff and say bioethanol? Um, so that's just the thought that I had was why why not try it where you where you're aggregating? Because like in 2019, 69,000 tons of hemp was disposed of. And I'm like, well, let's find where this hemp went and try to process at these transfer stations. I agree with you completely, Ahmed. Yeah, I mean, um, again, you know, each state has their own weird. Well, also the depots are actually looking to charge extra for uh, biomass based on the fact that it has THC content in it, um, which is why when we're engineering our process, we want to make sure that we utilize the entire crop. We we take we take the crop with THC, and I put that through. The bioreactor, I actually break it down um, in terms of a the, the micron size, and then we process it, and the bacteria eats up all the sugars and converts it to butanol. The um, the remaining sugars that we're 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 seeing again, if you look at a barrel of oil, there's what forty two percent is is gasoline, twenty seven percent is diesel. You have your jet fuel, then there's like ten percent is making six thousand products. And what I see in, in our field, the Hemp Global Association's goal is to make the equivalent 10,000 different byproducts that we can make in terms of a bio-based product from hemp. Um, we're making a, a protein isolate um, from grain, which is a patent process we have with the USDA. So it's, it's on par with eggs, egg whites and mother's milk. It's, um, it's a true isolate. Um, 
the other sugars that we have coming off, I turn those into two bioplastics, the um, polylactic acid and polyhydroxide alkanate. The PHA is the one bioplastic that can actually break down in the ocean. Uh, the bacteria eats it up and it's gone. So it's an incredible bioplastic. And we're not growing hemp just to make PHA. If you use a vertical integration in our process, we take out all the value um, added products that are coming off the whole plant and making a, a higher value product to sell in the open market. So it's a bio-based products that I'm looking at that's trying to compete with the petroleum industry's um, products. Vinny, you just nailed it. Uh, we call it nothing wasted, but the breeze through the leaves. Just find every little source of income you can find. Use them. the entire yes. plant. And, and, and I'm, I'm from California, but my parents were farmers. And um, what they say is that, you know, we, we use everything in the pig um, except for the squeal. And um, the only remaining component that's left in, um, that I see is the ash. And that only comprises about 3% um, of the whole um, hemp product. So the ash is what we're looking at a value for. And I'm sure that we could find something. And this group is so dynamic. There's somebody that's going to come up with a great idea to use um, the ash for. There's one other question that um, if we have a, a, a minute to answer, um, are, are you, what about using this process for other agricultural waste, like a corn stover or um, other, why, why did you go to this one and what about those? Well, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, so we, when I did my work at NREL, we looked at a bunch of different cellulosic feedstocks, including soybean straw, regular straw, waste paper. Uh, we looked at corn stover and other, other materials. And most of those require this sort of pretreatment, which we talked about earlier, which is expensive and requires um, some catalysts like acid or base. And Bob has been looking at some feedstocks that aren't corn, aren't as easy as corn, but still have a potential to be converted. And those include things like sugar beets um, and this, this root crop that we were looking at. So. For whatever reason, I think it may be because of the high cellulose content of the uh, this crop, we're able to enzymatically convert the majority of the carbohydrates to fermentable sugars, whereas that's more difficult with things like stover, wood, or straw. And I can't speak at the moment to the reason for that, but this is what we've observed in the lab. So um, what could we apply this process to other feedstocks? I think we could to some of these other things that are uh, a little less recalcitrant than things like wood or, or corn stover. So things like, you know, like sugar beets or other things it may be useful for. Um, and our, our parent company is called the Community Biorefinery. It was founded by um, Sammy Pierce, which was, he was a genius in the biofuels industry. He held the, um, he had the first patent on biodiesel from organics. It was held by Sammy Pierce. Um, if you look at the name biodiesel, Sammy was the one that trademarked the name biodiesel. And we've been looking at um, a variety of different feedstocks. When he called me, um, I kept telling Sammy, there's a tremendous amount of waste in the agricultural industry because he's been looking at corn, um, rice, stover, um, corn stover. Uh, we've done soybeans. I process great pumice that we've done citrus waste um the usda went around us to patent the um the limonene that we were actually extracted from citrus waste i was able to um, isolate and extract the resveratrol from great pumice so when you talk about hemp we are at its infancy um all research and development on this feedstock is what's frozen when they when they banned it and i i think that there's so much to this feedstock in terms of the phytochemicals or the nutraceuticals, whatever you wanna call it, to the fact that these components can be isolated and utilized to enhance mankind, um, to increase the appetite, as people know you get the munchies, but you can also take a, a terpene will decrease your desire to eat. There's to decrease your desire for opiates, for cigarette consumption, for alcohol. And we can go through and in the labs, we can pinpoint it and isolate it, spray dry it, put it in a pill form, and, and you can go into your dispensary. And as a nutraceutical, you can go and get that. If you're having issues with alcohol dependency, with nicotine, it, it's, it, there's so much out there that 
um, we have an, a huge opportunity for right now. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And I guess just to sort of close up here, um, what we're trying the sort of what we're trying to do with our process and the commercialization of this is, is to keep it as simple as possible. And by keeping it as simple as possible, we can drive down the costs. Uh, you know, we don't really want to get involved with all the complexities. I know a lot of people want to do that, and that's great. Uh, what we're trying to do on this is to be able to produce large quantities of ethanol at low cost. And then with the ethanol, with, with ethanol, there's so many pathways that can be utilized that that's on for, you know, the next step. But, you know, just to you know, restate that, that we're trying to come up with a low cost, simple process. And that's sort of our focus on this. And I just want to thank you all for the chance of doing this. Um, do we still have time for more questions or what are we doing, Joanne? Um, I think we're probably ready to, to wind up. Uh, I don't, I didn't see any uh, other questions that I think we covered everything. Ahmed, do you, is there anything else that you see in the chat that we missed? No, uh, great job, Joanne. I saw you tracking the chat and you did excellent. I think that we've, uh, I think we've got a good taste of the, the progress that's been made and it's excellent work. And uh, I think everybody should, thanks for attending. I was trying to talk to the USDA about doing a hemp biofuels conference and get them to give me a conference grant. I haven't heard back from them on their, uh, on my letter of intent, but this group would be excellent if I were able to pull off uh, a conference sp sponsored by the USDA uh, and, and, and think about people who would want to speak there, okay? Are you with them? Um, are you talking about the Western Regional Research Center in Albany? So I was talking to the USDA has um, AFRI and they have a, a content manager that's specifically for biofuels and bioethanol uh, or just biofuels in general. Um, and I've been communicating with them about, you know, hemp in general and what it, what interest the USDA has in funding and developing information about this topic. Um, so it, you know, we'll see how it goes with the USDA. I, I wrote a grant to them about utilizing hemp as a biofuel and some new pretreatment technology that has to do with pulse electric fields. Uh, that that research, I have already funded some work like that, um, where you can break down and get kind of sugars out of, you can break cellulose and hemicellulose down to get sugars. So I'm trying to participate in this space, but we'll see what happens. Well, I, I have been in contact with the USA. We have a pilot plant on the Eastern Regional Center, um, and it's, it's incredible the work that we have um, garnered with the USDA. I had the, the, the hybrid corn that I'm using is a, is a product of the USDA. They're, they're very interested. The problem I'm having with um, doing my work with hemp is that the feds won't allow, allow any of the, the, that feedstock on, on campus. So it's one of those, um, once that takes place, then all this research will be opened up. My, my labs that I'm, or the factory I'm building, will have a lab in it to work on the various components of, of hemp that talks about everything you're, you're addressing. And um, if you want to continue a conversation, maybe we can get a cup of coffee at Pete's Coffee. That would be great, Vincent. I, um, I thank you for attending and everybody did a great job. We'll I'll, I'll leave it to Mandy and Joanne to figure out the follow-up and, and what other events may occur, okay? Okay, thanks, Ahmed. Um, yeah, keep us in mind, we're an educational organization. So if you get stuff going on there, let's see if we might be able to be part of that. Um, and I wanted to say thanks to Mandy for uh, organizing this for, for uh, enabling us to, to reach this audience and to, to connect here on, on these really interesting topics. And, um, and I, uh, this was a great discussion, went all kinds of directions and uh, I'm glad to do it and I hope that we can uh, continue to be part of uh, everything you guys are doing. Thanks a lot. Thank you guys very much. I don't know if you can hear me, but that was fantastic. Um, Joanne, do you mind real quick sharing again the contact info for how do people get in touch with you should they want to get involved or have questions? 
Um, Advanced Biofuels USA is the organization that will get you to our website. I will put again the contact information um, in the chat. It's Advanced Bio a, a, and Advanced Biofuels USA. Uh, org, and there's a um, contact box there that has our email and, and phone number, which is info at will get it to me. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Ahmed and Vincent and Joanne and all of our speakers today, Bob. Um, I, I really appreciate what you guys did and your contribution. I would love to continue this conversation and support where I can. Um, anything else before we close up? Any last words? Uh, just thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank everybody. you. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you very thanks much. For Don. And thank well, you for hosting this, Mandy. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Um, again, we'd love to have your support as members of the association. Please go to globalhempassociation.org. This will be recorded and shared for you to come back to. It'll take a couple of weeks. We are a little bit behind on our updates or our transcriptions, so heads up. But this will be And my, my contact information, I put that in the chat already. Um, so it's a hemp hyphen biorefinery.com or the community biorefinery.com and you know feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions awesome okay well thank you very much you guys have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time <laughs>